This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's a beautiful day in early May of 2001. The California air is warm and sweet, perpetually inviting. But today, inside one family home in Modesto, the atmosphere is decidedly less sweet. The house's occupants, the Levies, are making desperate calls across the country to try and locate their daughter, an intern in Washington, D.C., her graduation ceremony at the University of Southern California is five days away. She was supposed to be home by now. She isn't. Their daughter, Chandra, hasn't called in days and never gave any indication that she might be late to her own graduation. Her parents have already called the D.C. Metro Police, but it's infuriating to have to wait for news from a police department 2,600 miles away. Instead, the Levies search through Chandra's cell phone records themselves, looking for any sort of clue as to who might know where she is. What they find sparks even more questions than answers. Over and over again, the Levies find one number that stands out from the rest, the phone number of California State Representative Gary Condit. As they search through the records, the Levies come to a sickening realization. Hadn't Chandra told them her boyfriend was a politician? Surely she couldn't have been seeing Condit, a married 52-year-old father of two. But if she was, did he know where Chandra Levy was? Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. Thank you. 
Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the death of Chandra Levy, a young Washington, D.C. intern who mysteriously disappeared in the spring of 2001, only to be found dead more than a year later in a local park. Her disappearance sparked a media firestorm that was only eclipsed by the September 11th terrorist attacks later that year. And the discovery of her body only brought more questions. Who killed Chandra Levy? And was her death part of a government cover-up? Join us as we uncover the web of lies, political intrigue, botched investigations, cover-ups, and possible conspiracies that came to light during the investigation of Chandra Levy's mysterious death. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And if you enjoy the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps us. Although the story of her unsolved death has been largely forgotten today, during the summer of 2001, Chandra Levy's disappearance was the news story. Her name dominated the media cycle. The picture of 24-year-old Levy in jeans, a white tank top, and an innocent smile seemed to be on every television screen across the country. Police are poring over what they know of Levy's final hours. We don't know the answer on where Chandra. If it was murder, who did it? It's hard to believe that anyone could not know about this case uh, with the intense coverage. For months, reporters were asking the same question. Where was she? Was she still alive? And who could possibly have any information as to where she went? Of course, part of the reason for the reporters' interest in Chandra's story came from the tendency of stories about young, attractive women gone missing to draw in concerned viewers like moths to a flame. News teams correctly guessed that constant coverage of every break in Chandra's case would make ratings soar. But part of the spark of the media firestorm was the actions of the Levy family themselves. On May 5th, 2001, as soon as they realized their daughter was missing, Chandra's parents felt the police weren't doing enough to help their daughter. They contacted various media outlets to bring more attention to Chandra's plight. And as the likelihood of Chandra being returned to her family alive grew more and more slim, the media spotlight only intensified its glare on the mysteries surrounding her case. With time to fill in the 24-hour news cycle, reporters came back to the unsolved case again and again, bringing up more and more outlandish theories to the public's attention in lieu of real evidence. Creating, or at least perpetuating, some truly off-the-wall conspiracy theories about what exactly happened to Chandra. As the days wore on, the media became more and more focused on one suspect in particular, more and more convinced that he was holding something back, and more and more convinced that the government knew more about Chandra Levy's disappearance than they were letting on. That man was Gary Condit. I would have never harmed Chandra. I was fond of Chandra. Was he hiding something? What did he know? 
Was the U.S. government involved in Chandra's disappearance? Condit's evasion and Chandra's missing body opened the door for all kinds of conspiracy theories, which we'll explore next week. But today, we'll be focusing on the official version of the story. Officially, Condit is innocent. And for now, it's important to remember just how much scrutiny followed Gary Condit and Chandra Levy's various connections throughout the investigation of her murder. If you remember anything about the media coverage of the Levy case circa 2001, this is probably the story you remember. Unfortunately for Condit's career, Chandra's murder is also the thing most people remember about and associate with him. The news was inescapable. Every twist and turn, every break in the case, was front-page news. Gary Condit, the most interesting and high-profile suspect, was constantly hounded by the press and concerned citizens asking for his resignation. Police are also talking about the possibility of a fourth interview with Congressman Gary Condit. And this was months before any concrete evidence in the case would serve to convict or exonerate him. He was guilty by association. For weeks, it seemed that the fervor of the media's search for Chandra wouldn't let up until a body was found. But fate had other ideas. On September 11, 2001, four passenger planes were hijacked by al-Qaeda terrorists and crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City and the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia. It was the largest terrorist attack on U.S. soil, and it rocked the nation, completely eclipsing the Chandra Levy investigation. In light of this horrific attack and the United States' subsequent invasion of Afghanistan, it was little wonder that Chandra's case was left by the wayside. But even the media's attention being drawn elsewhere doesn't fully explain why it took 13 months to find her. So was her tragic death part of a high-level cover-up, or simply a mismanaged investigation made by a police force that was ill-equipped to handle a high-profile disappearance? Let's take a look at the facts and the official version. Prior to 2001, Chandra Levy's life didn't seem like it would end in tragedy. She grew up in Modesto, California, in a sunny ranch home with horses out back and almond groves in front. Her uncle described her... Bubbly and vivacious, adventuresome. I think I can tell you that she liked peanut butter, Reese's peanut butter cups. She liked chocolate. She was trusting and considerate and kind. Her parents were kind, caring, and upper middle class, and they worked hard to provide Chandra with everything she wanted. But as charmed as her life may have been, she wasn't spoiled. She had ambition. She looked forward to a career in journalism or public administration. During her undergraduate studies at San Francisco State University, she interned with the mayor of Los Angeles. Later, when she pursued her master's degree at the University of Southern California, she moved up to interning for the governor. One of her professors described her as, She's a wonderful person. She's a wonderful, she's a, she's a riot. She's a lot of fun, but she's not a lot of fun. During her final semester at USC, she moved out to Washington, D.C. to pursue her dream, a paid internship with the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Early on during her time as an intern in Washington, D.C., Chandra befriended Gary Condit, apparently seeking career advice and a leg up in Washington. Although she never directly worked for him, she was good friends with one of his former interns and often visited his office. But many friends suspected something more between the married congressman and 24-year-old Chandra. 
even before she went missing. For the year leading up to her death, Chandra was uncharacteristically coy about who she was seeing. Her friends and parents knew she had a boyfriend, but didn't know anything about him. But that didn't mean she didn't drop hints. To friends in D.C., she mentioned dating someone who worked in the government. She claimed the mystery man looked just like Harrison Ford. To her mother, she once said about her boyfriend, quote, he's highly visible. You'll understand in five years, end quote. Although Chandra's cryptic statement would eventually come true, it wouldn't be in the way she expected. Sometime on the afternoon or evening of May 1st, 2001, Chandra Levy disappeared. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. And now, back to conspiracy theories. By May 3rd, 2001, Chandra Levy's parents were worried they hadn't heard from her and called her landlord to ask them to check on her. The landlord wasn't legally allowed to enter Chandra's apartment without her permission, so the Levy's were forced to wait two more days. Chandra Levy's parents, Robert and Susan, called D.C. police on May 5th, five days after they had last heard from their daughter. Far away and feeling like the police weren't taking their concerns seriously, the Levies then called Congressman Gary Condit. Congressman Gary Condit represented the Levy family's home district in California, a well-liked Democrat with a charming smile and a way with words. After noticing the phone number to Condit's office crop up time and time again, Robert Levy decided to call him personally. The phone call was brief. Robert asked Condit if he knew anything about Chandra's disappearance, and Condit replied that while Chandra often called him for career advice, she hadn't spoken to him for over a week. However, he pledged to do everything he could to help out. But whether it was a gut feeling or pure maternal intuition, Susan Levy, listening in, didn't buy Condit's story. As soon as her husband hung up the phone, she told him that she believed Condit was the boyfriend Chandra had been hinting at all along. She wasn't the only one with that gut reaction. Within days of Chandra's disappearance going public, the media zeroed in on her close ties with Condit, and rumors began spreading like wildfire. It was a suspicious number of calls, especially since Chandra had never officially worked for Condit's office. Condit said they weren't dating, so, what were all those calls really about? 
When Condit was questioned about the phone calls, he eventually admitted that he struck up a friendship with Chandra after she and a fellow USC graduate student visited his office in the fall of 2000. Although they expected to meet with an aide, they were greeted by Condit himself. Condit was jovial, charismatic, and exceedingly friendly to the two young women. He gave them a tour and offered Chandra's friend a job as an intern. And to Chandra, he promised to keep in touch. That was all Condit would disclose about his relationship with Chandra for the moment. Key phrase, for the moment. To his credit, Condit tried to keep the media attention on the problem at hand. In one interview with KOVR 13 TV, he said, I'm not worried about the gossip. I'm worried about a young girl's life. And on May 10th, Condit donated $10,000 to a reward fund for any information leading to her recovery. That same day, police finally got a warrant to search Chandra's apartment. There, they found two half-packed suitcases for her flight home, an empty refrigerator, a sink full of dirty dishes, and a purse containing her driver's license, credit cards, and cell phone. Susan Levy said of the apartment, Everything's there, but not my daughter. It just seemed as if she had stepped out of the house for a moment, planning to return soon. One of the investigators tried to search her laptop for clues as to where she might have gone, but he wasn't a trained computer technician. Instead of bringing up her search history, he corrupted it setting the investigation back weeks. Pulling up someone's search history shouldn't have been that difficult, should it? I mean, even for someone who wasn't necessarily trained. Well, remember, this all happened 17 years ago. Computer training was probably not as widespread in the police force as it would be today. Even if that's true, why would an untrained investigator volunteer for the job anyway? It seems like a huge oversight. Indeed it does. But this was only the first of many blunders during the early investigation. The second blunder came when police tried to obtain footage from the security cameras outside Chandra's apartment. To save money on their pre-digital cameras, her apartment building only held the tapes for seven days before recording over them. By the time investigators obtained a warrant to search inside Chandra's apartment, they were three days too late to pull the tapes from the day Chandra disappeared. It wasn't as if the police didn't have the common sense to check Chandra's apartment immediately. It was the first place they went on May 6th after the call from her parents. But they never picked up the tapes or even requested to view them. Blunder number two. For the next two months, there were very few breaks in the case. Chandra's computer remained inaccessible and no witnesses came forward. The police and the Levies joined the media in putting pressure on Congressman Condit. And finally, on July 5th, 2001, Condit admitted it. He'd had an affair with Chandra Levy. Police searched Congressman Gary Condit's apartment overnight, hauling away bags and boxes of evidence. Chief Charles Ramsey won't say what the search produced. He says it could take forensic technicians quite some time to determine whether they have meaningful evidence related to the Levy investigation. We don't know until it's analyzed, and it won't be analyzed for a period of time. We send our evidence down to the FBI lab for analysis. Ramsey says even though Levy's been missing for 10 weeks, Condit's apartment could yield useful evidence. With the chemicals we use now, with the techniques we use now. You can find uh, DNA evidence, you can find fibers, you can find all kinds of things. Police have repeatedly said Condit is not a suspect. The search proved the police correct. They reported no evidence incriminating Condit. 
they found a new lead somewhere else on Chandra's laptop. Here's where we get to the police's third and perhaps worst blunder of all. It came when the technicians finally recovered her search history in early July. Among searches for the weather, flight information, and a visit to Gary Condit's homepage was a visit to a webpage with directions to nearby Rock Creek Park. The day Chandra disappeared, she'd been looking up a guide to attractions at the park, including hiking trails, stables, a nature center, and planetarium. Chandra was an outdoorsy girl. She loved hiking. It was only logical she would have wanted to get some fresh air before packing for her trip home. And as the case was growing colder and colder by the day, it was one of their best leads. Acting on directions from D.C. Chief of Police Charles Ramsey, in late July, detectives headed to Rock Creek Park for any sign of Chandra or a clue to her disappearance. Now 85 days into their investigation, thanks to the delay on uncovering her search history, detectives were no longer looking for a missing young woman. They were looking for a body. It was still mid-morning as 28 police cadets were gathered in Rock Creek Park to search for Chandra, but temperatures were already climbing into the 80s. The trees provided some shade from the relentless summer heat, but little comfort. Still, even the heat wouldn't keep investigators from scouring the area. However, the search wasn't quite as thorough as the long line of cadets would imply. Another blunder? Precisely. Rock Creek Park is a fairly large area to search, even with 30 trained cadets at work. Its area covers a little over four square miles, most of which is heavily wooded. For that reason, either Chief of Police Ramsey or Commander Jack Barrett, who directed the search, instructed the cadets only to search no more than 100 yards off the park's paved trails, although there were several unpaved footpaths that crossed through the more heavily wooded areas of the park, they were never searched by police. The trail was cold. It would take nothing short of a complete accident to finally uncover what happened to Chandra Levy. For 10 months, Susan and Robert Levy held on to hope. I believe and I continue to hope and pray that she will come back to us alive. Early in the morning of May 22, 2002, a man named Philip Palmer walked his dog in the woods of D.C.'s Rock Creek Park. It was shaping up to be a warm day, but the shade from the poplar and oak forest kept him cool. He was walking off the footpath, not far enough to get lost, less than 100 yards from the trail, just down an embankment, He was searching for antlers and animal bones, anything to add to his growing collection of oddities. But what he found was more than he bargained for. When Philip's dog found a round, smooth piece of bone sticking out from the dirt, he thought he might have lucked into the skull of an animal, even an intact turtle shell. But as he got closer, he realized the bone was too large to be an animal. He had instead found a human skull. He marked the spot with his dog's leash and ran back uphill to call 911. When police arrived 10 minutes later, they found the remains of Chandra Levy's body. Scattered bones picked clean by time and local wildlife. A sweatshirt, sports bra and underwear, cassette player, and a pair of jogging pants oddly tied into knots. Chandra's body had been found in Rock Creek Park, only 89 yards from the nearest trail. Had the police searched the entire park, 
they would have found the body almost a whole year earlier. Because it had taken detectives 386 days to find Chandra's body, there wasn't a lot of physical evidence to be gleaned from the crime scene. Although, miraculously, her skull was found mostly intact, much of the rest of Chandra's bones were scattered fragments by the time they were able to be collected. Most of what was found during the initial search of the woods were small bones and teeth. After a week, forensics technicians gave up their search, believing that what was left of Chandra's remains must have been eaten or moved by local wildlife long ago. Two weeks later, a pair of private investigators hired by the Levy family returned to Rock Creek Park to further comb the area. The Levies believed that police investigators gave up their search for remains too early, and their suspicion was right. The investigators found a glaring oversight shortly after reaching the area. Chandra's left tibia, also known as the shin bone, sticking out of the dirt. The tibia is the second longest bone in the human body, just after the femur or thigh bone. Chandra's was about 13 inches long and completely intact. And worst of all, it was found 25 yards from her skull, just under a covering of leaves. And yet, after a week of searching with trained cadets and cadaver dogs, no one from the police department had found the bone. D.C. police claim that the bone must have been moved by local wildlife in between the two weeks between the first search and the search by the private investigators. They couldn't imagine any other reason why their teams completely missed the bone in their week-long search, which is a plausible explanation. However, when D.C. crime scene investigators returned to Rock Creek Park after the tibia was found, they found more bones scattered further away from the trail— hand and foot bones, pieces of the spinal column, a heel bone, and yes, even a femur. Maybe the most significant bone to be found in the second police search was Chandra's hyoid bone, which is a bone in the middle of the neck. It was broken, suggesting strangulation. However, by that point, it was impossible to tell if the broken bone had been related to Chandra's death or caused by the fragile bone being moved by local wildlife. Either way, the case was now officially ruled a homicide, and the police began searching for suspects. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, let's continue the story. Chandra Levy's death has been ruled a homicide, but the D.C. medical examiner has been unable to come up with an exact cause of death. Dr. Jonathan Arden says his staff has suspended all tests on tissue samples, and the Levy's attorney, Billy Martin, has been notified that her remains will soon be released. Now that the death has been classified a homicide, it's up to D.C. police to find a suspect. As strongly as Gary Condit may have been convicted of Chandra Levy's murder in the court of public opinion, he wasn't the one actually arrested for her death. That dubious honor belongs to Ingmar Guandique, an El Salvadorian immigrant who never knew Chandra prior to her death. From simply looking at his profile, 
It could be difficult to see just how Guandique, a 19-year-old illegal immigrant with a job in construction and a limited understanding of English, would have any connection with upper-middle-class government intern Chandra Levy. To discover how he entered the D.C. Metro Police's radar, we have to go back to May 14, 2001, two weeks after Chandra's disappearance. A jogger was on her usual path through Rock Creek Park. She was young and athletic, and she knew the park pretty well. She was comfortable enough with her run to listen to some music on her Sony Walkman to time her footsteps to the beat. Unbeknownst to her, the body of Chandra Levy was slowly beginning to decompose in the very park she was running through. But there was no way the runner could know that fact, so there was no reason for it to disturb her now. Instead, she was in the zone. Her run took her past a parking lot on Broad Branch Road, where she passed a young Hispanic man sitting on a park bench. He seemed to be minding his own business, so she didn't pay him any attention. Instead, she turned onto Beach Drive on a trail that led her deeper into the park. The young man stood up and followed her. Maybe it was her focus on her run. Maybe it was the music pouring in from her headphones, but the jogger didn't notice Ingmar Guandique as he followed her almost a mile along the trail into the woods. As they started to reach a more secluded area, the jogger began to sense that someone was running behind her. She slowed to let him pass. But in that moment, Guandique rushed forward and grabbed her from behind, flashing a knife at her neck. She screamed. She fought. She shoved her fingers down his throat in panic self-defense. Eventually, she was able to fight him off and run to the safety of the park's police station, where she described her assailant to the attending officers. Two months later, it happened again. Ingmar Guandique stalked a woman in Rock Creek Park as she went for a run, held a knife to her throat, and finally backed off and ran when she fought back. But this time, he wouldn't escape so easily. The park police officers were able to mobilize quickly, especially once they realized they had a serial attacker on their hands. They came across Guandique 45 minutes later, sweaty, wet, and covered in leaves, and took him to the police station. The second jogger quickly identified him as her attacker, and Guandique was put under arrest. It wasn't until Chandra's body was found in Rock Creek Park that investigators started to put together the pieces. Guandique was in prison when Chandra's remains were discovered, serving out his sentence for assault and attempted kidnapping of the two joggers. At first, the case against Guandique looked very promising. His attack against the two jogging women occurred in the same park where Chandra died, in a very similar situation. When investigators interviewed Guandica's co-workers, they mentioned that he had skipped work the day after Chandra went missing and showed up the next day with visible scratches and bruises on his skin. And perhaps most damningly, a jailhouse informant told police he overheard Guandica bragging about the murder. Sounds like they had their guy. So what was the catch? Well, while Guandica had admitted to attacking the other two women in Rock Creek Park, when shown a picture of Chandra, Guandique only admitted to recognizing her from the news. Uh, of course, he could be lying. Of course. But if he was lying, so was the jailhouse informant. The informant submitted to a polygraph test to determine if he'd made up the story about Guandique and Chandra's connection. 
And the test showed pretty conclusively that his answers were deceptive. Guandique's polygraph test, on the other hand, seemed to point to his innocence. That's an interesting point. But polygraph tests can be fooled. That's why they're generally inadmissible in court. True, but complicating things even further, Guandique wasn't fluent in English, and his polygraph results were only studied by English-speaking examiners. And it's clear that innocent or not, Guandique was an easy target for a police force desperately searching for someone to pin the crime on. As we'll discuss next week, Gary Condit, the other most likely suspect, was looking less and less likely by the week. Guandique, on the other hand, had a record of assault and abuse, was in the country illegally, and didn't speak enough English to properly make a case of his own innocence. You can see how this could be a perfect fall guy for D.C. Metro. But still, the Chandra Levy case sat unsolved for years. Guandique was still in prison for his assault of the two other women in Rock Creek Park, and Condit had been publicly disgraced for his involvement. But no one faced justice for Chandra's murder. At least not until 2009, eight years after Chandra's death, and long after her name had faded from the public consciousness. A bombshell article by the Washington Post delving into the mishandling of Chandra's case by D.C. police reignited public interest in solving the case, and Ingmar Guandique was finally brought to trial for her murder. He was charged with six counts, including kidnapping, first-degree murder, and first-degree sexual abuse. He pled not guilty to all counts. Most of the evidence against Guandique was circumstantial, including testimony from the two joggers he attacked in Rock Creek Park and Robert Levy, Chandra's father, who refuted his earlier claims that Condit was behind his daughter's murder. In his own words, Robert claimed that he thought Condit was guilty until he found out about Guandique. Although the evidence was thin, it was enough for the jury to make their decision. On November 22, 2010, nine and a half years after Chandra's death, Ingmar Guandique was found guilty of killing Chandra Levy and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and faced 30 years to life in prison. All the while, he has maintained his innocence. Not exactly satisfying. Susan Levy said, I'm not sure if it's a sense of peace, but I could certainly tell you it ain't closure. We see why she feels that way. And what about the media's favorite suspect, Gary Condit? Innocent of murder or not, things didn't exactly end happily for Condit. Largely due to his connections with Chandra, Condit lost his bid for re-election in 2002. Because even if he wasn't a murderer and conspirator, he may have had an affair with an intern and lied about it to police, obstructing justice and possibly even allowing a killer to get away. That's a hard rap for anyone to beat, but especially damaging for a career politician. Condit never truly recovered his credibility after the Chandra scandal. Though he's considered innocent, his association with her death changed the trajectory of his life forever. For seven years, from 2009 to 2016, that has been the official story. Ingmar Guandique killed Chandra Levy on a whim in Rock Creek Park. Her murder was more or less random. But is that what really happened? As it was reported in the murder trial's opening arguments. There's no physical evidence, no DNA evidence. Purportedly, Guandique confessed 
to some fellow prison inmates. The defense says that those supposed confessions are not reliable. Guandique's arrest leaves just as many questions as it answers. Why did he choose that day, that park, that time to attack a woman he had never met? What were his motivations, if not a burglary gone wrong? And the timing, too, is suspect. What was the likelihood that Guandique just happened to attack a woman who happened to be having an affair with a high-profile politician? And a week before her college graduation, no less? Did Guandique know more about Chandra than he led on to the FBI? At least one judge seems to agree that the evidence against Guandique wasn't strong enough to justify a conviction. Guandique has been appealing his conviction since 2011, and as recently as 2016, the charges against Guandique have been dropped in favor of his deportation to El Salvador. So now, even the official version of Chandra's story is in question. If she wasn't murdered by Ingmar Guandique, then what happened to Chandra Levy? Those are the facts of the case as we know them. We know that Chandra went missing on or around May 1st, 2001. We know that she went to Rock Creek Park and died, her body remaining undiscovered for 386 days. But the question of who killed Chandra Levy is shrouded in mystery, even today. Next week, we'll focus on a few central conspiracy theories about Chandra's disappearance. We aren't endorsing any of these theories. We're simply examining them. Conspiracy theory number one. Chandra was killed by Gary Condit or someone working for him, and Condit paid off the police force to cover it up. We'll dig into the scrutiny surrounding Gary Condit's involvement in Chandra's death. Was the media attention focusing on Condit justified? Or could it have been a smokescreen for a larger conspiracy, with tendrils of corruption reaching up as far as the vice president of the United States? Conspiracy theory number two. Regardless of who did it, Ingmar Guandique was intentionally framed for the murder. Were the reasons for his conviction justified? Or was he simply sent to jail on circumstantial evidence scraped together by a police force who needed a win under critical public scrutiny? We'll also give you some news on Guandique's recent acquittal. Is he truly innocent of Chandra's murder? And if so... How does this affect what we know about Chandra's disappearance? Could the real killer have gotten away with it? And the wildest theory, conspiracy theory number three. Chandra was killed as part of a government cover-up after discovering information she shouldn't have. We'll dip our toes into some more off-the-wall theories about Chandra's disappearance, including a secret baby, an undercover spy mission, and connections to the terrorist attacks on 9-11. Stick with us as we try to uncover the truth of what exactly happened to Chandra Levy. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you want to hear more Conspiracy Theories, you can find us on Apple Podcasts. Tune in, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Tell us your favorite conspiracy theories on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Join us next week as we continue our second look at the disappearance and death of Chandra Levy. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. <laughs>
Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Jordan Lyric and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.